Welcome back to Conversations of the Leaky Cauldron, episode 12, Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix, chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24. And back with me are my esteemed colleagues, Ms. Sarah Miller, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, Sarah. Welcome back, Wes. How are y'all doing? Good, good. How's it going? Good. Well. Greetings. 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 Welcome back. Cheers. Cheers to you two. It's it's good to be back in the old leaky cauldron. I've got to say, I, I had sort of a, a different weekend from usual and was sort of thrown off schedule. And so I'm very happy to be back at our Monday slot, our natural slot that we just keep doing. I mean, it's almost time to make some plans for the summer, I think, getting into March here. Um, mm-hmm. And just as this book is sort of chugging along and we got about 119 pages down this time around and we're really moving, and which I'm so impressive about, I'm impressed about given both of you having, you know, the schedules that you do and the commitments that you do, um, being, you know, teachers and also having, you know, and, you know, you're a writing teacher, Sarah, and that takes quite a bit of time. And, you know, Wes, you and your various commitments, you're now teaching online now and teaching a Silmarillion class. Is that so? That just started up. It is great because the students have read it more times than I have. So it's, uh, it's not too bad. (laughs) It's really cool. Yeah. That's on out out school. So that might be something I might be interested in taking if it's still possible. How would I do that if I wanted to? I don't know about grownups taking classes on there. I think that's discouraged. It's like for kids, but you could take class on there. So if there were a kid who wanted Mm. to sign Mm -hmm. up for that, or there were a parent who wanted oh, to yeah. get up for that. How would they do that? Yeah, that's just, uh, I think if you Google it, OutSchool Silmarillion, it should be the first thing that would come up, I'd think. I don't think there's another one. It's uh, under the Night School account. So I think, uh, you know, click around on there and it'll say somewhere like, you know, sign up for this class. Even though the class started, it was, it was only a week ago. So I think you're, uh, you'd still stand to have a pretty good, six or seven weeks left in it, I think. So yeah, yeah. If anyone out there wants to do it, go for it. Well, that sounds great. And is that a book that you've taught before, Sarah? I know that you've, you've taught the, a fantasy literature course before and done some J.R.R. Tolkien, but did you ever hit the Silmarillion? Um, I used sections of the Silmarillion, like small little pieces, but I've never taught the text itself. It's so much about world creation as opposed to and like you know like background myths for lord of the rings that i was working with kids for whom you know getting them to do the reading for lord of the rings was a big deal i think somerillion <laughs> is a little a little more dry um unless you're already into it in which case it's really exciting you know i, I could be right. wrong with uh, no, you're, 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 I you're, I think hitting precisely why I think Wes is probably very interested in this text, <laughs> especially because we've been talking a lot about world creation, except for in the context of video games. So, okay, well, let's get to this particular secondary world then. And I apologize to the listeners for, for sort of asking about these new sort of other secondary, secondary worlds, but we will be getting to them soon enough. And I'm looking forward to hearing any connections that both of you have about that, because that's a text I haven't touched before, but I did have a very interesting conversation once with our fellow graduate student, Devin Frost, Miss Devin Frost, about it, where she, she really, she was very into the story and she described it very well and um, sort of how God sang the world into existence there. And so the lion and the serpent, we see as our king, as you were singing to us, uh, Wes, and then Hagrid's tale, we finally, uh, 
and I sort of feel bad about how easily the kids trick Hagrid, but we get his tale and uh, some other stuff happening there. Some big stuff, as it were. The Eye of the Snake, St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries. We get to meet Neville's parents finally and uh, sort of confront him about our knowledge of that. Christmas on the Closed Ward and Occlumency. So where do y'all want to start? I, Wes, I know you'd said you you had a very particular topic that you wanted to get into. And Sarah, I know you sort of left it open, but now having sort of talked Silmarillion and laid out the chapter titles, where do y'all think uh, would be good? Weasley is our king, talking about the Eye of the Snake. Uh, St. Mungo's, a wizarding hospital. Mm. A lot of food in front of us. What to, di- what to dig into first? I, well, I was thinking about the food thing, actually, when, when we said cheers, I was thinking of, of Hagrid with his uh, dragon steak that's like dripping blood down his face um, and how soothing that is for him. And I'm really glad that Hagrid is back. I, I didn't remember his, his tale very well. Like I vaguely on to, you know, talk to the giants or whatever, but it's like, it's pretty brutal. Uh, the way that they that all played out. Um, and I was curious if you guys thought that there was like a particular like allegory going on there or if it's more just sort of like a story about how brutal um, politics can be for like um, oppressed peoples or, or like what, what, did, what is that chapter like serving to do aside from getting Hagrid back into the story and, and explaining where he's been? I think... Maybe, Sarah, you can actually speak to its narrative function, but I could throw out some sort of symbols that I potentially see that may or may not uh, actually relate. The, the idea of them being giants, if we wanted to, say, take a psychoanalytic view of this, could be Hagrid struggling with his own inner nature and whether he should serve Dumbledore, who he is so loyal to, or, or potentially Voldemort in that he, um, you know, it is obviously his people's proclivity to serve the darkness. And insofar as Voldemort is a representation of the darkness in all characters, this could have been um, uh, the idea that Hagrid is wrestling with himself in the same way that, say, Jacob wrestles with an angel. Now, that said, I think it's a more sophisticated story than that. And so I do think it's very interesting taking the sociological perspective of, say, sort of an indigenous, less sophisticated people that rely on strength that recalls to me quite a bit the Lystragones and Polyphemus, the Cyclops from the Odyssey. And sort of the story in the Odyssey is that the intelligent man who can see that which uh, that is unseeable with the eyes, who can use his intelligence, can defeat a much stronger opponent. Polyphemus being sort of a barbarian son of Poseidon. Um, but not even being able to see who is right in front of him. The man Odysseus who will blind him and not even uh, having the sort of uh, foresight or, or sight to, to check underneath his rams when they walk by him, even though one that is usually in the front is in the back, clearly being weighed down by a man hanging beneath it. But, you know, he's so dumb that he, uh, that he does not see what is happening around him even after it has happened. Uh, quite opposite to the Phaeacians, who are actually related to the Cyclopes because they were once giants under the King Eurymedon. But I, I see sort of sort of a that, but I also see sort of a negative or darkness potentially as well in the magical community. And that, uh, again, and this seems to be sort of a big part of this book, house elves, um, centaurs we'll see later, uh, you know, nearly 
human creatures as defined by Dolores Umbridge. Or, and these, these again are creatures that are subjugated by magicians um, or have been exiled from their homelands and have been reduced. Uh, we would say decimated today incorrectly because the decimation is a reduction by one-tenth, not two one-tenth, down to what, 70 or so members? And then there's sort of the comment that they, you can't make an accord with them because they, you know, they're just going to fight and everything's going to get tossed upside down at some point. And then there's going to be potentially a new ruler and you'll have to start negotiations all over. And that's, that just doesn't seem to work. So, so I'm, not, I'm not yet making the connection to, say, a real group, but I see mythological connections. And it's not because I, I don't know that they don't exist. I just uh, I haven't gotten there yet. Sarah, what do you see? Um, no, I think the mythological connections are interesting. Um, I definitely, um, I noticed as Hagrid was telling his story that there was this emphasis on, um, the giant inability for, for many of them, their inability to speak English. Yes. Um, and that like language seemed to be a barrier. Um, and that, I don't know if it's that McNair um, didn't try to speak to them in English, but, um, you know, when the Death Eaters, uh, approached the, the new chief who was far more violent, um, the original chief, like, received them with English, and it seemed as though part of what, um, uh, what was received well was the, the story of Dumbledore. They'd heard of Dumbledore and his, his campaign to um, protect them from unjust laws. I'm forgetting the exact details of the story since it's been a while since I read it. I read it like last week, but um, I do remember that the linguistic barrier seemed significant and um, that there were a smaller number of giants who were, um, you know, keen to, to listen to um, Hagrid and Madame Maxime. Um, you know, I, in terms of like historical parallels or contemporary parallels, I think what it really brought up to me was like colonialism and um, uh, the giants being othered and rendered savage um, by virtue of laws, but also by virtue of the, the difference in customs, the difference in language. Obviously, there are a variety of iterations of colonialism. The British colonial project lasted, you know, a thousand years in different places. And, um, you know, the effect of rendering a group of people um, as other and then legislating how and when they can interact with the rest of the group, I think is like a particularly, um, like, civil ironically civilized way of um, demolishing a group of people. It doesn't require um, force like the, the the magical world didn't have to fight giants it just had to like push them all into a space where they would kill each other and um that seems to be like kind of a tactic of of colonial rule where you find a way to make the oppressed people oppress themselves so like makes it easier on the colonial power and that's sort of what i what i was thinking of as i was reading the giants is um, you know, just this, this question of who is savage and who is civilized and, um, what separates the two of them 
uh, it seems to be language, among other things, um, seems to be like an attempt to honor customs and norms and um, and like approach with humility. Um, that's that's sort of what I was thinking about. I don't know if if there's like metaphor in there, um, you know, like a, a way in which Hagrid's own identity or the things that he wrestles with at Hogwarts are kind of paralleled in um, the things that he wrestles with out there. I think, I think certainly as a half giant, um, you know, he faces, he, he's not welcome in their community just as much as he's not really like professor Umbridge makes it quite clear from her, like fairly racist demeanor towards him. Like, you know, yes. speaking to him, like he can't understand language, you know, like, um, uh, using her hands and over enunciating to try and communicate with him. Like, um, again, language becomes this thing that people use to um, uh, either open up lines of dialogue and diplomacy and to build relationships, or it becomes this thing that you can use to really harm other people. But, you know, that does seem uniquely human, right? Like our skills, our gifts, can easily become the things that we use to destroy one another. Um, that's sort of what I was seeing in the in it. That's very good. I see the sociological parallel with sort of the theory behind the wire and Baltimore is well there with the sort of theory of the oppressor creating conditions in which the oppressed eliminates itself. I wonder if there are also not just nonviolent means, but also sort of assimilating uh, patterns as well. And perhaps that's why in sort of um, uh, minority culture, sometimes there is sort of a, within the culture itself, an antipathy towards assimilation, right? Um, and it becomes sort of an, uh, a, a mark of denigration to take on the customs of the so-called oppressor. But, I, and Wes, I'm definitely interested in what you have to say to that. And Sarah, I thought that was very sophisticated and excellent. Um, but the language piece is something I feel like you've also mentioned before, Wes, like the idea of the dark wizards having sort of a parcel tongue and even having their own symbol, the dark mark. And uh, you've brought up the fact that Lord Voldemort is Lord Voldemort to Harry. He's the dark Lord to the death eaters. And he is he who must be not, who must not be named to non death eaters. And of course, Snake calls him the dark Lord still, which Harry will call him on eventually. But, um, but uh, the language pops up again here. And yeah. I, yeah. So what, what do you do with that? I was thinking about the way that it sort of connects with um, anger, I guess, like the, the way that uh, Umbridge um, provokes uh, Hagrid, you know, and he doesn't even really rise to it, but she, she does really insult him to his face and, and, and plays off of um, the students, particularly the, Sw the Slytherins. But even when, she asks a Gryffindor one of her little questions. She'll twist whatever they say, you know, to to follow the the preconceived idea she's already got um, that that Hagrid is not fit to be a teacher, and and that really makes Hermione uh, like I guess as angry as probably we've seen her really um, right. at least in a while, and and that anger thing is such a big thing in the book. Well. You know, the chapter before the lion and the serpent, we see uh, um, Harry and, and the, I guess it's George Weasley, 
uh, one of the twins anyway, get um, overcome, you know, by uh, Malfoy's wicked uh, remarks. And, and he had been stirring up, you know, Ron the whole game with his song. He got everyone to sing it. Um, that it's not exactly magical, right? But, but words definitely have a power um, and it can be multiplied in lots of ways, you know, by song and by simple mass, you know, and by having the kind of, um, you know, audience that that serves for uh, for various kinds of um, nefarious purposes. Usually, uh, I I also think that there's something to the the kind of privacy um, that we see going on at at Hagrid's house. You know, like she just. Umbridge that is just barges in there and um, asserts her like authority. He's just gotten yeah. home from this long trip, you know, which was hazardous to his health, and um, and she she doesn't care at all, you know. That that to me is like the strongest image of like a, a colonial move so far in in the series. But uh, yeah, I I don't know if um, I don't know if Hermione is. Um, overcome by her anger in quite the same way as as harry is but she definitely gets it you know umbridge definitely gets her goat there and that seems in line with sort of the theme that she fights for the oppressed and has a real sense of justice as well i would say but just sort of tangential to that when you mentioned uh the sort of foul comments of of malfoy at the expense of the weasleys it's interesting that generally he makes those comments to Ron and Harry, people of his own year, people he's sort of on an equal footing to, he seems to sort of mess up and yet actually really succeed um, by speaking this way in front of Fred and George this time. And I really like the description that it takes Harry to stop George and it takes Alicia and, um, I'm looking at it right now here, Katie and Angelina to stop Fred. Like, Malfoy, you messed with the wrong guys. Like, uh, I don't know. There's just something very interesting about seeing Fred and George get fired up as well. We're seeing so many people get angry and often for just reasons. We've also seen earlier, and I suppose just to keep connecting, um, you know, Sirius and Molly Weasley get upset at each other. And these, you know, two people who want the best for somebody, uh, not somebody just outright antagonizing someone else in order to serve sort of um, puerile malevolence like uh, Draco has, or, or even maybe uh, cunning intelligence, you know, the snake here. He wants to win the Quidditch Cup, so he wants the best players on the team uh, kicked off. You know, I wonder if, you know, his antagonism is not as much boyish, boyish sort of roguishness and more actual cunning to get what he wants. But, um, yeah, Sarah, what do you do with the anger in this? I know we've talked about it some, but the specific anger that Wes has mentioned and tying it even to Fred and George and how does that relate to language? I mean, I think, uh, if I understand you all correctly, are you, are you talking about how Malfoy's words can inspire such rage and how we've never seen it in Fred and George? Just Well, yeah, Malfoy um, and Umbridge, apparently. And I was just sort of throwing yeah. in there that Fred and George, like, I don't know, just sort of I get a thrill from seeing them get mad at someone because it's like, can you just imagine, can you imagine the, the hell they, they could, they could yeah. on someone? I mean, I think of back 
we back to the detention that Dolores Umbridge um, saddled Harry with. How much words have the power to liberate, but they also have the power to dominate or enslave. Um, you know, the right words delivered in the right place in the right way can provoke. Um, you know, new thought. I mean, in, in Frederick Douglass's narrative, it's the it's literacy. It's it's the acquisition of of reading and writing capacity that he attributes his eventual bodily freedom to. Um, so, by the way, does Barack Obama in um, Dreams of My Father talk about education as his as the source of his you know um, you know liberation of of spirit and mind. Um, it's sort of a, a common, common way of thinking about um, the, it's sort of a common theme in um, like the tradition of African-American literature that language has the power to liberate a mind um, sometimes long before the body is liberated from slavery. And, but, but I, I think also language has the power to enslave. Um, and um, Fred and George are the two of the freest characters in the entire series, right? They, they couldn't give two shits about like uh, rules, punishment, <laughs> expectations, right? Like they are unfettered in a lot of ways, right? There was like some, when they described the grading system about how like, about the OWLs and how they should have received um, exceeds expectations just because they showed up, you know, like they don't <laughs> care about standards. They are free from from caring about any of that stuff um and um when Malfoy makes them so mad I think it's I think it's an example of how um you know language has the has the power to uh um really dominate um and hurt um maybe more so than and, and in a more insidious way like getting back to the way we've talked about evil and shadow and how it starts to lurk in places that aren't as obvious or traditional or like seemingly pure villainy right but like evil seeps in to these crevices and pockets and like language does that better than brute blunt force right like um because it, it turns a mind on itself um you you know it's it, i think it's a really it's a it's cheesy but it's a really powerful weapon um I would say that the the words that Harry now has etched on his hand, as well as like the language of, I think we talked about it last time, like the language of Percy's letter, the language of the High Inquisitor um, uh, decrees, the educational decrees, the language of um, the press, it all can be wielded for good or for evil. And it, it like seeps into the places um, where like a, a swift punch in the face or like a good old like jinx to the body like those are acts of physical force but these acts of like mental force are are really um, damaging and and yet for Harry like the words that are etched onto his hand it's it's interesting that those also become like his um, his motivating tool you know like he, he he's He's both incredibly enslaved to her and yet liberated, which I think is the great irony of what, of, of like how evil functions in fantasy stories is that they ultimately 
create the thing or inspire the thing that ends up destroying them. But um, like they, they have this inherent weakness, but anyway, that's sort of how I connect language and anger and, and enslavement, I suppose, and othering, but. That's very powerful. That's extraordinary. Um, And just to focus on what you said at the beginning about sort of a feature uh, Barack Obama's um, thought and who was the thinker before? It wasn't James Baldwin, was it? No, uh, Frederick Douglass is pretty famous for for this. Yeah, Yeah. James Baldwin talks, uh, you know, adjacently about it, but I'm not as familiar with his, his body of work. Um, Richard Wright also talks about it in Black Boy. Um, And I just see that thought also echoed in um, Paul's letter of Philemon, where Philemon is, of course, a slave, but he talks about how he's free and that he's a Christian. And so he is a brother to Paul, though he's going to return as a slave, physically speaking. I see that, that idea very much um, shared there. Um, and where was it? I also had seen, oh yes, also in the thought of Martin Heidegger, he says language is the house of being. So insofar as one has language and that means mm-hmm. the capacity to articulate one's thoughts, then one is free. And uh, Jordan Peterson recently has become very famous for championing that idea as well, um, using as one of his sort of basis for that, the story of Marduk, who is a, a Mesopotamian god whose power comes from his eyes around his head and his capacity to speak magic fire words, um, which is um, interesting because just in Dante's Inferno, Canto 26, Ulysses, the great teller of stories, the greatest storyteller, as, as uh, Athena says of Odysseus in book 13 of the Odyssey, that uh, that is why she loves him because he always keeps his head and is the greatest storyteller that exists. And himself, he values stories so highly that he gives the prize cut of meat to Demodocus of the Phaeacians, their blind singer. And so it's like he is giving credit to Homer for his existence in that moment, who is also, of course, a blind poet. But he, he is not allowed to speak to um, Dante because Dante can't speak ancient Greek or he would be too deceptive. He needed Virgil as intermediary to, uh, to um, interpret him. And so insofar as one requires someone else for one's interpretation, one is not master of, say, um, oneself. Um, by that point and just to sort of tie to that is in paradiso 26 one gets to talk to adam the very first creator of words so one who first sort of inscribed the fire of language on being and so i just i wanted to make some connections with language too sarah because yours was just very profound and powerful but um uh, and so i guess wes which way would you like to go with that the uh, talking about sort of uh, languages as giving what, I mean, what is it that makes language so powerful that it can enrage, cause pain, enslave, or ultimately liberate? Uh, I guess that's like, to sum up all of that stuff, maybe we could say like magic or something like that. But right, right. You know, that's, that's possible. Um, in, in terms of what Umbridge is doing too, though, uh, it's it's also like the the, um, the the legal profession, right? It's like yes. this thing, this authority, um, which I have, is is basically simply because there's some words on a piece of paper, right? Signed by a particular person with some words after his name. Um, that that way in which you know the 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 reverence 
for an established authority is carried out through through words. Um, obviously, the the giants don't really uh, work that way, but um, but among the wizards and among the humans, that that seems to be the way it goes. And um, th there's like there's limits to language too, though, right? Like there's points at which, uh, as you see in in Hagrid's lesson, even though he's completely like distracted and keeps losing his train of thought like the actual lesson itself is really good because it's right there right you can see the hunk of meat getting uh eaten even if you can't see what's eating it and and a few of the students can see what's eating it right and so there's like their their reality is actually different from that of the other students and even more to the point right their reality is, is quite different from Umbridge's. Like her perception of what's going on there is so skewed by her preconceived notion and her desire to, to get Hagrid in full or whatever, um, belittle him, et cetera, like that she can't possibly, you know, learn anything in that moment. Like, oh my gosh, there's, there is this thing there and um, uh, I can see it and other students can't can't and the reason <laughs> sorry uh I, I'll, the I'll reason there, I yeah no, no i yeah the reason is where i heard you stop what was the reason uh that he can um that he's seen death right uh whereas the others haven't um and and so like his world has changed since he's he's had his eyes open to that, right? And the Thestrals are like a, a great metaphor for that. Yeah, and I, I want to ask you about the Thestrals a little, Sarah. I, I, I hadn't thought about this yet, but in what way are the Thestrals as something which is invisible to those who have not the experience of death, but are visible to those who have had the experience of death, yet both groups of people can see the effects of them eating the flesh or eating away at something, uh, is that in some way, uh, how, how did you interpret that? And, and do you in some way see that as a metaphor for language as well? Well, I hadn't quite thought about it as a metaphor for language, but you know, I'll have to, maybe that will sink in in the next few minutes or in the next half hour or so. But, um, you know, I just sort of see the Thestrals as a sort of a manifestation of, um, uh, grief, I guess, um, mm. that, that, um, for Harry and I guess for Neville and for Luna and for the other boy who had witnessed death, there's things that are ineffable, right? Speaking of language, I guess, but there are things that are where like language fails as Wes, you said, like some of those I think are, are really, um, intense emotions. Um, and it doesn't mean that language isn't useful in those scenarios. It just means that we never really feel like, I mean, I don't know if you've ever felt this, but you know, when you feel like you don't quite have the words to know what to say to someone who is experiencing a deep emotion, be it grief, um, maybe the emotion is fear, maybe the emotion is um, like vaulting love or euphoria or something or joy, but like sometimes words might feel kind of like you cheapen things like you, re you return them to earth and like there's something kind of 
I don't know, either subterranean or celestial about these, about these like really intense emotions. And it's possible that like witnessing death doesn't always do that to you, especially if you're like a little kid. Um, but like Harry couldn't see the Thestrals until he saw Cedric die, right? He couldn't see them. He was around when his mom and dad died, but for some reason that didn't matter, right? right. That he, he only saw them after his fourth year. Um, and maybe that has to do with the capacity to like try and order something that is relatively hard to order. I think as natural as death might be, um, I think one of the things that words do is they help us map and they help us make sense and they help us order things that are in our world. Um, just like what we're doing now, trying to order something with language. But um, for the festivals, like, I can understand. I, I, I think what they represent is like the nature of, uh, of, of death that like you can read all you want about it um, and you can listen to the songs and you can look at the art and you can, you know, read all the books, but there's just nothing that will truly prepare you for understanding um, until you've experienced it up close and personal. And that doesn't even mean losing someone that you love. It means watching it. And I think it's, it stuns you into a kind of silence. Um, Harry has a lot of trouble talking about it. He doesn't even like to talk about what he watched. Um, and, and I, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's something, something to, to play with. Just my two cents. For sure, very strong, and reminds me a bit, Wes, of uh, what we were talking about in Final Fantasy VII with sort of Ares dying right in front of us. Not just there's a character in the video game we play, Sarah, who who was killed in front of us, and we've just now started to deal with that appropriately in the game. Our characters sort of coming to grips with that. But Sarah or Wes, what do you do with the Thestrals? I, I sort of asked about the language, and Sarah said she sort of saw them as a manifestation of grief, which I, th I think is very strong. What do you see? Uh, yeah, like it's this thing that, that um, Hagrid chooses for his first class back. Like he, you know, Hermione tries to talk him out of doing anything, you know, dangerous or adva like too advanced, right? She wants him to play it safe. But he's like, no, nah, I'm not concerned about that. Like I, I'd rather like do this really interesting, awesome thing because I'm Hagrid, <laughs> that's what I do, right? So um, that's that's his lesson, right? It's like showing them this thing, this living thing, um, that's that's as powerful as and sort of undergirds the the words of his lesson. And I think that's really important to just like think about, particularly someone like me who gets kind of caught up in just books and words and stuff. You know, there has to be something that they refer to for them to really mean anything. And there, there has to be like a, a point of contact where it like can be turned to some kind of activity, right? Or skill or um, insight that, that wasn't there before. And, and so I guess, you know, Harry being able to see them, that, that was like a puzzle initially for him because he didn't know what that meant. Um, so he kind of started from the thing itself in this case. Um, but I think it's possible to start from the words too and, and work your way to the thing. At any rate, they're like, they're kind of, they need to be commensurate and they need to um, kind of work together, be coordinated um, for them to be effective. And, and you know, 
the Thestral, as we'll see, right, like he'll eventually actually uh, uh, ride it, if I remember right. And and I think it's mentioned here that Dumbledore sometimes uses them to travel if he doesn't want to apparate for whatever reason. I, I found that very interesting. I found that interesting too, because I suppose it's a, it's a discreet way of traveling, going from one place to another due to the grief or despair that one has directly witnessed in one's life. I wonder if that's also the sort of metaphor that's operant in Stranger Things, the second season, when the boy, Will, who is... Um, clearly a symbol for a traumatized human, travels between the upside down world and this world, or sort of the world of being pulled into his own trauma um, and going into a different psychic space, even though he is in the physical same space and becoming completely alone and isolated because of that. And um, whether this is also sort of a comment on the ability for a trauma or a scar on oneself to take one from the place one is in into another place or to draw one back into sort of the nether regions of a past memory in which you are still the person you were in that moment and have not yet integrated that wound or that knowledge or the information from it and, and sort of realized who you are now as opposed to who you were then, whether now you're old and you were once young and you're still acting youthfully or whether you're, you're now strong and you were once weak and um, you you haven't um, you haven't re reintegrated that new knowledge yet. Um, uh, I think yeah, that's I, a. Yeah. I was going to say that I don't know if this is where you were going, but that's a great way to integrate or to segue into um, Harry sort of like feeling like he was taking taken out of Hogwarts um, by the feeling embodied by or taking the shape of the snake in um oh that's chapter go on uh, with that yeah go yeah. on with that please no i was just going to say the idea that like one trauma is um maybe be, from what you were saying in stranger things and i think that's an apt description of will um someone who's who's haunted right um and who right the, who, for whom what they have experienced in the case of Will, it's, it's not the same as the case of Harry, but for Harry, it's, it's um, what, what haunts him, it seems, is that he played such a key role in the, um, uh, the rehabil or the, not the rehabilitation, the resurrection yes. of an evil being, like his body, something from his body was taken from him against his wishes and contributed to the rise of this evil being or the resurrection of this evil being. You know, the, the very opposite of the only thing in his life that he's wanted resurrected, which is the good being, his parents, right? Um, right. And, it's like, a, it's like um, a rape in that way. Yeah. And he, and he feels, I, again, I might be psychoanalyzing, but I think he feels an enormous amount of guilt um, that he couldn't stop Cedric from being killed, that he couldn't stop um, uh, Voldemort from taking his blood, and that now the one thing that has always protected him, i.e. his blood, is not a protection anymore. And I think he feels this enormous guilt, so I think he's, he's haunted by it. He's clearly um, governed beyond his brain uh, by his anger over this experience, by his anger um, at people's inability to 
understand his experience and at his inability to translate that experience into something that other people could understand, i.e. using language. And like right. he, so, so all of these angers sort of compound on one another and they become this, this vicious kind of hound within him. And he's not as in control of himself as, and, and then to be fair, a 15 year old, like, you know, they're not really in control of themselves anyway, but um, he's, he's certainly not, he's certainly struggling with that. And I think he, when he becomes, when he's in the middle of this dream, um, just before he arrives and what he learns is the, the department of um, mysteries, he is like facing a variety of social failures right in this dream um and i think he's just like constantly haunted by things and they sort of they become a wormhole for him um i don't know if that i don't know if i have anywhere else to go with that but i just i thought what you were suggesting about trauma does relate nicely to the to the thing where he he sort of feels like he's embodying something else because he it so against his will was forced to become like to share in a way to share body with uh yes. to share his body with with something so evil that was going to be my follow-up question to west uh, what extent do you see the connection between uh what sarah just said and the fact that uh harry is literally now the father of darkness his seed has been his blood has been taken from him by force in a rapacious act and then used to inseminate essentially and reconstitute and resurrect the dark lord so that which he once destroyed unconsciously and uh, not by his own will he is now resurrected not by his own will and do you see a connection between that and harry sort of fathering darkness or evil in his surroundings through giving way to anger or do you see it in a different way or do you see a connection there what do you think wes I guess there's there's probably something going on with that. Um, I hadn't thought about it in quite that way, but you know, when he's a baby, um, he does sort of take Voldemort's life in a way, but like unconsciously, right? And then when he's on the cusp of puberty, here he is. It's taken back from him, right? Voldemort gets his life back, and then some. Um, he he kills. Cedric while he's at it and almost kills Harry and um, you know he does seem to have some element of Harry in him now um, as you're talking about you know the the sexual component of the story comes up right in this moment too in the eye of the snake chapter where we're where we've been talking about there's sort of like three big eye or seeing like images there the the first is seeing the Thestrals and then the third is seeing, you know, from the snake's point of view, the the attack on Arthur. Um, but in between, there's this moment where he's left alone with Cho Chang in the um, room of requirement after their their last um, DA meeting of the, uh, you know, before the break. And she starts to cry about, you know, having all these emotions that Harry's having trouble understanding. He's got plenty of emotions of his own, but he just can't quite make that, you know, leap at this point. So then she just goes ahead and and gives him the kiss, right? And that like overpowers him. It like it stops the narrative. It's so powerful. There's just the break. Um, 
as she's coming in for the kiss and he can see every tear clinging to her eyelashes right so there's this this eye image there too um it's not exactly the eye of the snake um but insofar as harry you know has contributed to now this rise of voldemort again and insofar as harry is responsible um for the the dumbledore's army right this whole kind of mobilization in a smaller way of the kind of thing the order of the phoenix is trying to do um and we'll see this again when he goes upstairs to visit Dumbledore finally. He looks at Dumbledore and gets this, this rage when their eyes meet. You know, so there, there is definitely something going on um, between the, like, the, the perception and the, uh, the intention or the sort of soul that, that is, is transmitted by that, um, how that all relates to the body and you know, life and generation. Like th there's a lot there. I don't know that I've got a, a particularly good handle on it. I mean, I think the the sort of um, the images are are all pointing that direction, though. And and there's there's definitely something there. I think that's very strong, and you just make me think of uh, not to be too crude, but of course, the eye of the snake is a is a vulgar metaphor, right? Like the one-eyed monster, which is also what a cyclops is, uh, in a Freudian way, as a metaphor for. Um, which is very interesting. Um, also, of course, the eyes of the snake, the basilisk, are what petrified and turned one to stone in the second book. And we sort of interpreted that in a Medusian way, that sort of certain things in nature, particularly the female gaze to the male, has a petrifying effect uh, because that is the force of selection on a male. And generally the, the force is strong and says, nope, not you. But also just another connection to that is um, uh, Lynn Isabel, a primatologist, or rather, uh, I guess she's a herbologist, a herpologist uh, from UCLA claims that humans developed, or as primates, better vision due to being able to detect the patterns on snakes back in their lower field of vision. So in areas with higher snake populations, you see creatures with better vision. And humans as primates have the best vision of any of them. Mm. So we must have fought against the most snakes which is one of the ideas why we have so many snakes, including dragons in all of our mythologies, because as creatures that have been around for uh, millions of years, we've fought a lot of snakes, which I think is sort of interesting. Um, uh, but there was one other thing about uh, snakes that I wanted to mention or the eye of the snake. Oh yes, there's a, there's a contrast here between, um, and of course the snake is renowned for its cunning biblically, so it is a very aware creature. And that also I think com uh, connects nicely to the fact that snakes are so cunning and they ate a lot of our young over a historical time. And recently there was a video going around about one catching a crow, which is pretty gnarly in Australia, thank God. But um, Dante locates the eye in which the just rulers are in Cantos 18 to 20, the Paradiso, in an eagle, so, uh, which is you know a contrasting image to the snake. In fact, the Mexican flag with a snake in the talons of an eagle, I think uh, indicates a great tension amongst their people. That's an image from Zarathustra as well by Nietzsche of a, a snake being in the talons of an eagle and sort of the Jungian interpretation of that in Jung's seminar on that was that, well, the snake belongs on the ground, not in the talons of an eagle. That's not a good position for the snake. And, in fact, in the Iliad, a snake is dropped by an eagle 
that then becomes angry and will get vengeance on the eagle. And that's supposed to be a sign for yeah. the Trojans sort of uh, angering the Achaeans, but the Achaeans going to come back in force. And so, um, so Sarah, I'm not exactly sure where that leaves me with a question. Do you, what sorts of connections do you see? I mean, the snake image is just so rich and even especially in the story. And I, I mean, even just as a basic question, is this Nagini character? I know we found out something about her in the most recent Fantastic Beast. Is she a basilisk? Because I don't, I don't feel like she has, does she have the petrifying vision? And then anything else you want to add to that, please do, because this has been a very rich conversation. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that Nagini is a basilisk. I think that would have been more, you know, um, potently right and prominently featured, I think, in the narrative. Like, I don't think we would have a question about that. Um, right. Uh, you know, just as a, just to like go for full circle, I think, not full circle, but like return us to something that we talked about a lot in, um, when we read the second book, that, um, you know, something that Harry and Voldemort share is their capacity to understand the language of a snake. And, yes. um, uh, you know, to be able to, to take all of the hissing and to turn it into something meaningful, um, kind of like how Harry can see the Thestrals and can derive meaning from that when other people can't. Like, he has access to, um, like, to knowledge, be it through language or through, you know, his, the, the sense of his vision, he can, he can see and understand and hear things that other people can't. Um, and I don't know, I don't know that I have much more to add to the idea of the snake. I certainly in the, in, in the Bible, it is, it is, uh, the source of evil, not because it itself is evil, um, but because it tempts Adam and Eve to make a choice that is contrary to the law of God, right? So, um, don't eat the don't eat the fruit from the tree of good and evil, uh, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And um, you know, um, I, I think it, it highlights that the snake to me always. Uh, I always think of the screw tape letters, just because, um, uh, you know, because it's associated with the devil and et cetera. But Wes, I'm not sure if you've read those, those, but the, uh, um, like one among the many things in the letters is this idea that like language can divide. And if you just, if you say the right thing to the human, you know, he'll be, he or she will be tempted away from the ways of God. And it, it, it I think, um, the idea of, um, of a, of a snake to me highlights free choice um and like uh how important that is how how powerful of a tool that is for good or for evil um and that sort of circles back to the to the theme of language that we were talking about earlier but i don't know that i have anything else to add besides that well that's pretty strong that's pretty strong well you know we're we're at an hour now and i really do want to talk about occlumency but do you all think that we should leave that off for next time and conclude with something fun? Like I, I, I feel like I asked a question like this to you all and it just didn't go that well, but I, I asked something like if you were a wizard 
and you were celebrating Lent. So tomorrow would be Fat Tuesday for you, as it is in our world, our primary world. And then that would be followed by 40 days of abstaining from something. I think I asked what sort of spell would you abstain from? But I guess the first question I want to ask is, Sarah, are you observing Lent this year? And if so, what are you giving up? Wow, Alex, put me on the spot with the public displays of faith. Um, uh, yeah, I'm observing Lent. Um, I usually do. I tend not to give up stuff, but to like, um, I maybe like abstain from certain ways of thinking or behaving. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sort of past the point where giving up candy is is like spiritually fruitful or whatever. <laughs> so. I, <laughs> I don't, I, I understand how like, you know, give up coffee or pop or whatever. If it doesn't bring you closer to God, then it doesn't work. Um, (laughs) That's then it's, it's a waste. Like that's not a, that's not a useful sacrifice. It's supposed to remind you of the sacrifice of Christ. So I tend to like add something on to my life. Um, And so I do like a, a Lenten prayer practice and I tend to find a way to, be like spend an hour a week in more direct service to the poor and marginalized, even though, you know, an hour is not always easy to give in that respect. Um, I don't want to make it sound like I'm in any way some kind of, you know, do gooder or, you know, perfect Catholic or whatever. I'm and in fact, the Catholic church and I are not on speaking terms at the moment, but um yeah, I, I like to I like to observe it for my for my own self. Um, and if I were a wizard and I had to abstain from, oh, I'll, I'll okay. This is a small thing. Um, so one of the things I'm going I am going to abstain from, but but not because I just want to give it up, but because I need to um, like break the habit. And I'm going to try and like use the money for some kind of like alms giving is. Like buying coffee in the morning is not a good use of my money as much as I love it. Um, and I need to stop. It's an indulgence that, that is not necessary during the week. So my intention is to give that up. And um, that reminds me, like one of the reasons I do that in the morning is because I'm always, always, always so cold. And my classroom is so godforsaken cold that <laughs> I want something like hot to hold on to as long as possible. That spell that Hermione does to like heat up the walkway to like melt the snow or like heat up her clothes. I don't even think we get like a word. I, I would use that all the time. If I could like <laughs> heat up heat up my socks or like the sweatshirt that I'm wearing right now, if I could like make it warm, I would be using that. I would be abusing that, that spell. I'd probably have to give that one up. Um, but I'm sure that there's like a more serious one that I could give up as well. What a sophisticated response. I'm, you're really giving me some food for thought there because I almost take more pleasure in the idea behind your action than the action yourself because I was sort of just fighting with the triteness of giving up something just to give something up. But with the idea behind it, perhaps, perhaps I could do something more. Uh, I'll have to do some thinking tonight. But Wes, um, I suppose I suppose I should be fair. And uh, are you observing Lent and giving anything up? And were you a wizard, um, and you were going to observe Lent? Can you think of something you would give up? And maybe not even just a spell, just anything that you might have access to, 
in the wizarding world? Ooh, man, I don't know. I I don't think I've ever observed Lent. Um, I was I was looking at some photos from the carnival uh, in in Brazil. Um, mm. So I guess in some sense I was like vaguely aware that it must be happening because if there's carnival, then there's Lent, right? That's how that works. Um, right. I, I didn't even I didn't even put that together to be honest. I was like, oh, these are some really colorful pictures. <laughs> I'm gonna look at these. <laughs> uh, I yeah, I'm pretty much a heathen, I gotta say. Uh, but I do love getting to eat pancakes. Like any excuse to eat a lot of pancakes <laughs> is fine by me. Um, I'm gonna, you know, continue doing basically my routine. It's working for me pretty well right now where um, I, uh, you know, I, I have to go out and do my um, chicken chores. We've got a couple of chickens now and they have uh, not been laying eggs all winter, you know. You still gotta like take care of them though. Um, but they have recently started laying eggs again. So that's exciting to me. Like I like it when chores are not just a thing that you have to do, but that you actually, you know, have some benefit from doing them, um, or at least you avoid some negative of not doing them, right? So, like, to your your point about, like, you know, giving something up is supposed to actually, like, accomplish something, or else there's no point in really doing it. Yeah, I, I totally, totally concur with that, and um, I feel like you can sort of, you know, put up with a lot if you see a reason for it. So, anyway, that's just, like, a small example, I guess, but if I were, you know, a wizard and I was to give up some aspect of wizarding, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I like how pretty cool. It's, uh, it's chaotic and, and give up apparating. Um, it's easy because I've never been able to apparate. So, um, I wouldn't miss it much, I guess, but like, I mean, what an amazing power. Like, of all the wizarding powers, that one is up there, like, with time turning, right? Like, controlling time and space itself. And so, I guess, yeah, um, apparition, I would I would let go of that and just, you know, ride my Thestral around for 40 days or whatever it is. Very good. Very good. And I see why you want to play Zelda so much with uh, the very famous chicken uh, catching scenes. I don't know that that happens in Majora's Mask. And it, it does an Ocarina of Time, though, so... That's pretty funny. Yeah, did you, you know, have something to say about that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Sarah. I was just going to say I was just going to say that one year um a couple in college a couple of friends of mine and I gave up the elevator just to like as a primary word example, primary world example of that and like having to take the stairs every day like everywhere was not easy. So I applaud that choice, Wes, like giving up apparating like the easy way of of, of traveling. You know, Sitting in your ancestral slash car in traffic, um, you know. Yeah, and YouTube would just make me think, thinking about your differing ways of interpreting the task. That um, you know, my favorite saying is Saint Christopher, because when a monk told him that the best way to serve the Lord was to fast and pray, he said, "I'm not going to do that." And so he was given a task more appropriate to his extraordinary size and strength which was to help people cross a river, sort of like what the Buddha is known to have done with people and sort of like the allegory of the cave. Um, but that makes me think that how I would, you know, of course that resonates with me and the sort of person I am is it makes me want to accomplish something. 
over the next 40 days. So maybe something mental or maybe something physical, something that is demanding upon my time and also brings me closer to the logos or that which is divine in a way, um, in a way that is particular to my own gifts and my own uh, way of being in this world. And um, so maybe 40 podcasts over 40 days or, or uh, you know, something physical as well, maybe run something like a half marathon and train for that and um, bring myself closer to the fount of all being by being as much as I can be. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to what extent one learns about oneself through the sacrifices one endures voluntarily. I think, um, and I, I think that'll be, I think that'll be something that we'll start seeing in the next few chapters too. What, what is worth sacrificing for? What is worth even potentially dying for? And maybe that's something that every person who needs a reason why a raison d'etre needs. Um, and maybe that makes for a good life too. Well, y'all. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. And I guess magically what I would give up is, I don't know. I don't know yet. I don't, and I guess that's not a cop, that's not a cop out, but, uh, or that is a cop out. So mm, yeah, I'd give up riding my broom. I'm an athlete as ever, as you all know, and I like to play my sports. And so and just to say exactly the opposite of what I might suggest that I would do in the primary world is maybe I'd give up playing Quidditch for 40 days and hit the books or something like that. Um, so still operate around save my time, but give up something that, you know, I take a lot of joy in my sports. Yeah, man. Yeah. I, um, I hope that you are able to find something that is like worth doing every day. Um, podcasting right. sounds like a good one. I mean, uh, I don't think I can do a, a Harry Potter podcast every day, but you could you could definitely find a topic for for each day of the week. I, I don't doubt it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, we're not so far away from that as it is. So uh, maybe some serious thinking going to be happening. I'm going to have to hit the pensieve a bit after this. Um, get rid of some extraneous thoughts and then really get into it. So, okay, well then let's start with occlumency next time. And um, well, we've been really clipping along. Where should we get to for this next time? 25, 26, 27, 28. Looks pretty interesting. Snape's worth since memory. 29, career advice. There's a big fight between McGonagall and uh, Umbridge there, which would be fine. And do, do we want to get to 30 and Grop? I, that's a pretty, pretty healthy chunk of reading if we do. I think we should certainly get through Snape's worst memory because I think that's like a tandem setting to occlumency since we didn't talk about it. We also right. didn't really talk about um, uh, like anything that we learned at Christmas um right christmas on the on the ward and you know um all of that i think that there we'll have some stuff to talk about that maybe from the the chapters so i would be okay with like a like fewer chapters just because there's more to discuss but i'm also happy to okay. keep going at like the sixth chapter five or six chapters a, a clip that i mean that sounds I, like good reason yeah I think, yeah. I yeah i think up through 20 up through the end of 28, if we could, that would probably be plenty. Yeah. All right. 
I think that'd be Perfect. plenty to talk about for sure. And then we can hit a couple of the pieces that we, we didn't have time for today during our dis our discursion on language. I guess we had a few words to say about language. Um, and you know, yeah, like you said, Sarah, perhaps that, and or Wes, that perhaps that is the greatest magic. Perhaps that is the greatest spell. Um, interesting. Very interesting. Okay, well, much manna, much food for thought tonight. Um, thanks for helping to clothe me in some virtue and bring me beyond the mundane, fellow pocketeers and uh, or leaky cauldronites at this point. Cauldronians? <laughs> um, yeah. In any case, salute and bottoms up, y'all. All right. Have a good one. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Have a good night. Later.